All right, let's turn then to Hosea and chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. I will just read the first verse and then give us the background and then tell us where we are going. As you can see, the topic is uh, God will surely chastise his people. God will surely chastise his people. Now, if you've been following me or following the series, you will know that that topic title is simply a modification of two or three others that have been more or less along the same theme, and I'll explain the reason why. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. I have mentioned that the series title is simply Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And we are essentially going all the way from Hosea to Malachi, seeking to learn what these latter prophets had to say to the people of Israel. And as we noted, um, of these 12, about four of them were speaking to Israel just before Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. The next four or so are speaking to the people of Israel and Judah while they are in captivity. And then the last four, again or so, are speaking to the people of Israel as they come out of captivity and they are a sorry sight. So if you realize that, it makes the 12 um, prophets or minor prophets easier to, to be able to understand or to follow through. So as we are in Hosea, therefore, it's not difficult for you to picture the fact that Hosea there is speaking to the people of Israel, warning them about their behavior, because if they continue like this, God's judgment is going to fall upon them. We have seen, as we've made our way through this uh, minor prophet, that um, in chapter 1 to chapter 3, we have uh, Hosea being told to marry a prostitute. And the reason is because God wants to, as it were, give a blow between the eyes to the people of Israel. That when they process the way in which Hosea handles his wife, they may be able to see the way in which God is handling them. The way in which they will be uh, disgusted by what is going on is the way they ought to be disgusted by what is going on in their lives. So we saw Hosea proceed. He married this woman, had children with them. While having the children, this woman would run away and uh, go after other men. And in the process, Hosea says, enough is enough. He chases her away. He actually tells his children, I've had enough of your mother, and off 
uh, he sends her so that she can now go and as it were enjoy herself let's see what happens well she goes and then it's terrible as you would anticipate the the people that were giving money all the money's dry up and so on and she has a difficult time and then god says to Hosea, now go and get her back and that's really at the beginning of chapter three that the shortest chapter where everybody would be rather disgusted about it how do you go and get a woman who is living like this hosea goes to get her and it's at that point that the picture gives way to the reality and so from chapter four onwards we begin to see how god has uh, a controversy with his people that's chapter four and then towards the halfway or so through that all the way to chapter seven we have god speaking over and over again about how he will discipline his unrepentant children and also describing something of their grievous and stubborn sins and the reason why i said that the title of my sermon is simply a play on words is because we've already been through this as god was speaking about disciplining his unrepentant people from chapter 5 into chapter 6 and then their own sin um, and so forth again from chapter 8 to chapter 10 uh, which was three solid chapters uh, 8 9 and 10 went through that in one sermon again god was repeating how he would discipline his idolatrous people so almost the whole book is full of this god speaking about disciplining his people disciplining his people and they, they still were stubborn still continuing until disaster fell however in chapter 11 there was a small break in which god was primarily in the midst of all those threats speaking about how he loved his people and wanted to restore them how he loved his people and wanted to restore them look at the way chapter 11 began we we were there last time when israel was a child i loved him god says and out of egypt i called my child and then this was the disaster the more they were called the more they went astray they kept sacrificing to bowels and burning offerings to idols so they they still went after what their hearts desired instead of god himself and we find the same in verse 8 as he is now speaking about the punishment he's going to give them and how he felt if we could use human language and so verse 8 says how can i give you up o ephraim how can i hand you over o israel how can i make you like adma how can i treat you like zeboim my heart recoils within me my compassion grows warm and tender and then he says i will not execute my burning anger i will not again destroy ephraim for i am god and not a man the holy one in your midst and i will not come 
in wrath. So that's what we looked at. Here was God in the midst of all these threats showing that he had a genuine love for the people of Israel. And what we've been saying as we've been applying this to ourselves is that, yes, today's idols, largely speaking, are not carved images from marble or from wood. They are not trees or, or mountains and hills that we often bow down to. Uh, we, we, we have our idols, and they are in the form of careers, they are in the form of human lovers, they are in the form of money and property, they are in the form of entertainment, and so on. And it is in two senses. The devotion that we give to these, over and above our devotion to the Lord, and secondly, the sense of security that we put in them over and above resting and trusting in God. Those two immediately tell us that this is an idol that we have in our lives. The devotion and also the sense of trust and security. Now, because of that, again, it's exactly the same thing. We end up giving God empty service, lip service, when actual fact, our hearts are somewhere else. And God says no to that, even today, and consequently chastises his people. Christians, yes, get disciplined by the Lord. Churches, yes, get disciplined by the Lord, because they have gone after idols and simply give lip service to this God. That's the relevance of the minor prophets. They come as a warning to all of us. So today, again, we'll be going through two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, and as you will notice, the theme is there again. God will surely chastise his people. And then, the Lord willing, next week, we go to chapter 14, which is also quite short. It's only nine verses long. And there, again, you have the Lord showing his love. And that's where his message ends. Pleading with Israel. Pleading with Judah. Or as he sometimes calls them, pleading with Ephraim to come back to come back, to come back. And on that note, we end Hosea. But before we get to the appeal, as you can see in verse 1 of chapter 14, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. That's where Hosea finally ends. But before he gets there, one more lengthy appeal of warning that I will chastise you. So let's quickly fly through these two chapters, seeing the way in which Hosea addresses this matter. We've already seen in chapter 12 and verse 1 how God speaks about Israel, the people of Israel, being sinful and also chasing after the wind. In other words, at a human level, thinking, you know what, uh, Assyria... 
is, is this mighty nation that's going to give us security from any other nation that might come against us. Egypt is this mighty nation that we can go to and they will give us security against others while at the same time they are continuing to live in sin. And again, you can picture that with respect to a backslidden Christian. It's I'm going to continue in sin and then you know what's going to give me security? It's my job. It's my business. It's my this and my that. My, my uncle. I've got a very rich uncle. So he's the one who's going to sort of make sure that nothing terrible happens to me. And so you abandon God. You still go to church, but really you are deliberately, stubbornly continuing in sin because you think that everything else around you will give you that security. Your, maybe your, your medical insurance, which is worth a million kwacha or something. You know, therefore, whatever illness or disease comes, I know that I will be well looked after. Well, the Lord, um, in verse 2 down to verse 6, particularly reminds Israel using um, the name Jacob and in a play on words uses Jacob in terms of also reminding them about the earlier Jacob, their great, great, great grandfather and what kind of man that he was. And you can't miss the fact that what God is bringing out is something of his stubbornness, his bad stubbornness and his good stubbornness. And then he's making the appeal that his people might go in the positive stubbornness. Look at this. I'll quickly read verse 2 to verse 6. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And what are those deeds? Look at what happened. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. I think we all know the story about uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. We had his, it in our morning Bible reading here when he took or he stole his birthright. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. And there was, when he became an adult, he was now somebody who also laid hold of God. The way he, in the womb he had gotten hold of his brother, he now got a hold of God and would not let God go. Verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. And then here's the application. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So he's basically saying, yes, you come from a stubborn root. That's true about you. On one hand, there was something negative about that stubbornness in Judah, but hey, there was something positive. 
when he strove with God, he wept so that God would bless him. I will not let you go until you bless. And he is saying, look at where you are now. You, you so easily let go of God, so easily, in order to clutch on to something else, some other idol. And he's saying, come back to this good side of your God. Come back to that. And oh, that we, as God's people, would have this kind of faith that he is appealing to Israel about. A faith that says, in the midst of all the realities of life, in the midst of joblessness, in the midst of childlessness, in the midst of all kinds of other trials, it's God that I'm going to hold on to. God. Not other forms of securities. God is the one I'll hold on to. I will cry to the Lord. That's what he's saying. That I should be your God and not the idols that you might be going after. But then, unfortunately, it's the exact opposite. The children of Israel, as we'll notice in verse 7 downwards, instead, they assume God doesn't see their double life. That's the assumption. That somehow he is blind to the fact that they are actually leaning on idols for their security. And so he says to them, I will therefore punish you and I'm going to make you poor despite those same riches that you have. That's how I'm going to punish you. And obviously what it really means is I'm going to send you into captivity, which means that whatever it is you end here will not do you any good whatsoever. Verse 7 to verse 9. A, a merchant, that's an, an example of them, in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find me, find in me iniquity or sin. Don't catch me. Through false balances. And then the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. Now what used to happen is um, in, in the nation of Israel, they had uh, a feast where, which commemorated the days of their travel from Egypt all the way to Israel. And in that feast, they were to leave their houses. So if you can imagine, you, you all live in concrete houses. But for that one week, you put up a tent outside and you lived in that tent. And that was meant to commemorate those days when their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers for 40 years would live in those tents. So what is basically saying is that <laughs> this time it won't just be a week of this event. I'm actually sending you to live like that 
despite the fact that you have had proper homes to live in. But that's the way you will live, obviously implying the captivity that they were going to go through. Now, why was God going to do this to them? Well, it's not because he is a capricious uh, or malicious God without feelings. It's the fact that he had spoken to them over and over and over again through prophets, and they just wouldn't listen. So in a sense, this was now the last straw because they did not listen to the prophets he sent them. He was now going to punish them. Uh, verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Verse 10 to the end of the chapter. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Now, I should quickly explain here. These sacrifices are not to God. These sacrifices are to idols. So, He's speaking to them through the prophets. He's speaking to them through prophets. Speaking to them. And then what are they doing after that? They go and they sacrifice to idols. They, they still continue with their hearts after idolatry. Verse 12. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. God there, God there Israel saved for a wife. And for a wife, he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. Okay, again, notice the emphasis by a prophet, by a prophet, by a prophet. So this is something that God deliberately wants to, to drive home to the people of Israel. And then he says, um, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet was guarded. Then Ephraim has given bitter provocation. Now that bitter provocation has to do with the sacrificing bulls and these altars to idols. So God is being provoked. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. You get the picture there. It's a Christian who comes to church and is basically half asleep through church. But God's word is still being preached. It's being given to the people. But it's like going in through one ear and out through the other. Because as soon as church is over, back to that which is my chief devotion, my chief delight. And that's where the person is now, really alive. And God is actually saying that. I remember one preacher, uh, he's dead now, it was uh, in the early 20th century who said that uh, uh, 
many Christians are like wooden statues in church on Sunday. And then he says, and like Apache warriors in the stadium watching the sport. Now, you know, some of us may have lost out, but when some of us were growing up, some of our favorite movies were cowboys and Indians. They were always uh, like Tom and Jerry chasing each other. Often the cowboys won and the Indians ended up being destroyed. The Indians were supposed to be the bad guys. But somewhere in the middle of the movie, you would have the, the Indians now coming to attack this place where the cowboys were. And the amount of noise they made as they're coming into the attack. And uh, he was making the point about believers who, when they're in church, they are catching fish. As soon as church is over now, it's uh, my football team. And off they go, shouting. That's the point that he was really making. Where is the real devotion there? Where? And the point that is being brought out in this text, therefore, is precisely that, that here they are, they listen to the prophets, but they don't do what the prophets say. Instead, as soon as they finish listening, off they go to sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field, provoking God in such a terrible way. The word provocation there is deliberate because God wants to bring out the nature of the relationship that he has with God's people. It's, it's this relationship of love. It ought to be of singular love. And when there is a, um, a betrayal and the message becomes clear that I am not the loved one, then obviously there is a, a genuine injury. A genuine injury. It's like those of us who are married. Your, your husband is not, or your wife is not saying to you, I love you. You, you can't remember the last time you heard those words. And then you stumble across their text messages to somebody else. And literally every day, so I love you. Good morning, I love you. Good afternoon, I love you. Good night, I love you. And so on. I mean, that's the provocation. Because you're saying, this person's heart is supposed to be with me. But look at these expressions of love to another. And that's what God is saying here concerning Israel. Can you see why he used that picture for Hosea? and his, his wife. Have you seen? Because it then makes a lot of sense. But let's hurry on. There's an aspect here in chapter 13 that he brings out which also speaks to us as Christians today. And it is the way in which Israel lost its, its position of uh, um, respect, its, its, its position of uh, uniqueness 
among the Israelites, rather among the nations, primarily because of this same idolatry. And in the, in the end, therefore, it, it became like any other nation. And I think it speaks to us. But before we apply, let me just quickly read verse 1 to verse 3. When Ephraim spoke once upon a time, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Now, it's not that he actually died physically, but it was this uh, position of spiritual authority that was lost. Completely lost. The, the sense of influence was lost. Why? Through idolatry. Through idolatry. And listen to this. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, that's how useless they will be, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls through from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window basically reduced to nothing. May I suggest to you that that's what has robbed the Christian church of its strength and of its power. It's not so much what happens in church, because we all know what to do. It is how we now go on to live when we are out there in the world. Among the unbelievers, when we are together in the offices and we are speaking just like them, just like them, they, they thirst after money, you're also thirsting after money, just like them. They begin to see that actually we're not different here, we are literally the same, except me, I go to the bar on Friday. He goes to church on Sunday. That's the main difference. But otherwise, we are actually all the same. And so when you now say, um, uh, at church we are having uh, uh, some meetings, can you come along? The person is really thinking you just want them to join your club. That's what it is, just a club. After all, we do the same things. We, we are passionate about the same things. We are living for the same things. So it's just a club. And hence, the easy answer, I'm busy. Very easy, I'm busy. There's nothing to really strike home. But it's, it's when a life is different that it really strikes home. I've, I've never forgotten how two people witnessed to me before I got converted. Well, one was by words, the other was by life. But the first one, he's still alive, he's one of Zambia's most prominent lawyers, uh, still living out in the world. But at that time, I've never forgotten, he, he, he shared with me the gospel. I don't even remember anything 
of what the content was. What I remember is the way I was thinking. I was thinking, he wants me to start going to his club. You know, at school, you had clubs. Scripture Union club, what and what club. So I was thinking, he wants me to start going to his club. And the reason was quite simple. We're doing the same things. You know, in secondary school, you're all naughty. I was as naughty as he was, and so forth. So he lacked the power to really get me to sit up and do something about it. That would have been uh, at secondary school. When I finished secondary school and came to my dad's home, um, my, my elder sister had just been converted four months earlier in September 1978. So this was now December 78. And I tell you, she did not witness to me. She did not share the gospel with me. Her life. I've never forgotten it. Her life. My dad had become an alcoholic. Everything that could be turned into beer had been turned into beer. Life was hard. I remember she would often go to the hedge of our yard. There was a, a, a hedge there that she would pick the leaves to cook so that we could eat something. But when she was cooking, she was singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Me, I was bitter, bitter with my dad because I had just come from, before my mom died, it was a wealthy home, and now this, I was bitter. And I couldn't understand this peace and joy in my sister. And once or twice, dad would be coming from drinking with his friends and he would call me from the bedroom to come and show off my son has finished secondary school. And I wouldn't come out of the bedroom. I just, no, you can do what he wants. My sister would come and plead and try and show me what respect is for elderly people. But I remember thinking, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm not a Christian. It was very clear to me. And that's how I began to seek the Lord. Let me say it again. Often, our workmates and our friends have no respect for our Christian faith because outside office hours, that is worship times, outside this, we live exactly like them. That's the idolatry that was here. Those who offer human sacrifice kiss cows. That's what they're doing. Mwah! To this sacrifice. And they're supposed to be worshippers of God. What a loss of power. And hence they've become like morning mist, like dew, like chaff that swells from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Are you bearing spiritual fruit? Are souls coming to faith through you? Are people being challenged spiritually? Or have you become completely ineffective? Completely. I want to suggest to you, if it's the latter, check your life. Check where your devotion 
really is. Check what comes out of your mouth about genuine security in life. Check. And you might discover that is this which is a problem, that you actually have an idol or idols, and they have rendered you powerless in terms of your own effectiveness. Well, because of that, God comes back to the point that whereas he had previously blessed his people, now he is coming to punish them and to curse them. Verse 4 down to verse 8. Verse 4 down to verse 8. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And beside me there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. We know what begins to happen. When the Lord blesses us, we know what begins to happen. We shove him by the side, and now we go into idolatry. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. What is he going to do? Verse 7. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. You can understand the picture. They're really angry out with a vengeance. Robbed of her cubs, I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. What a picture! What a picture! And all that Hosea is trying to do here is to wake them up. But friends, yes, this God may have blessed you, but trust me, this God is going to come and punish you severely, severely, that in the end, you will be the ones who will be utterly shocked. In fact, for me, the, the most difficult picture to process is the very last verse. I'll read it now, but we will get to it later. But it's just showing something of, of the, the picture that's supposed to shock the Israelites back to a sincere, monogamous relationship with God. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Listen to this. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Wow. Your entire person can't process it. But God is saying, that's what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do. And any human being, try to imagine a little baby that you know personally being held by the legs and dashed against a rock till the skull opens. Imagine that. A woman that you know personally who's expecting and someone takes a knife and opens her up. Imagine. 
that's the way God feels, humanly speaking, of course, using human language. That's how he feels concerning the provocation of idolatry by his people. By his people. When they make him just one of those things in his life, in their lives, right? When he's supposed to be their all and in all. But let's go back to our text. Because he goes on to say to them that the very king they had asked for, remember when they were asking for a king, they were saying that we might be like other nations, a king who's going to defend us and protect us and so on. He's now saying to them, that same king won't help you when I come like a ferocious beast. He will not be able to help you. Verse 9 down to verse 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princess? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So the bottom line is, those human kings that you wanted to hide in as your security, that will not work. Instead, full punishment is coming. Full punishment is coming. Verse 12 and verse 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. Now, this is a, a wonderful picture. And it's this. You know, even church discipline, people make the mistake. They think people, when they sin, elders punish them. No. It's when they sin stubbornly that elders punish. You must never overlook that bit about stubbornly, continuing in sin. And that's what God is bringing out here when he says the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, the sin is kept in store. In other words, yes, they went into idolatry once, yes, twice, yes. The prophets are speaking. What are they doing? Continuing in idolatry. Continuing to offer sacrifices to idols. Despite what God is saying through the prophets. So what are they doing? It's like you, you've got this uh, rope that has a, a bag or a sack at the bottom of it. And every time you are doing something sinful, you are throwing a, a piece of copper ore or even uh, gold on top of it. And so it's, it's filling up. You are there still doing whatever you're doing and you're throwing, it's filling up. Now, finally, a time comes when the rope gets cut. And that's it. Disaster falls. Somewhere along the way, God says, enough is enough. The pangs of childbirth come from him. For he is an unwise son. For, listen, at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. 
So the picture there again is that here's a baby that is growing in the womb, growing in the womb, growing in the womb. But instead of coming out finally alive and a new child, at the end of this season, at the end of this time, it is death that is finally being presented. I've already hinted that that's the way it is with the Christian life. We all sin. We are sinners. But the true Christian is a repentant repenter. The repentant repenter. He acknowledges his sin and abandons it. Notice that phrase. Abandons it. When a backslider hangs on to their sin. Watch this space. I'm telling you, just watch this space. God finally says enough is enough. He opens the wardrobe, the skeletons fall out, and from that point, it is a downward spiral. It's painful. But there were enough warning signs along the way to stop it. Enough. And we, we all know that. You're in church, and the pastor is preaching or somebody else, and you're thinking, ah, oh, I think someone must have told him about me. How come this sermon seems to be scratching where it's itching? Nobody, or at least no one human, told the preacher about you. It's gone and is deliberately bruising the wound so that you can go out and give up that sin. That's what he wants you to do. If you don't, the sin is kept in store, it's growing, disaster finally falls. Well, two quick points, and then we wrap up. First of all, God still loves his people. That's the thing that's very amazing. God still loves his people. And so, even in the midst of saying, I'm going to do all these things to you, he still adds the fact that because I have committed myself eternally, I will still come in and save you. Verse 14 I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? You remember the verse that Paul has quoted in 1 Corinthians. And then he says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. So there's still that aspect of I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. But he said, but not yet. For now, you need to feel the pain of chastisement. So later on, yes, I will come and save. I will come and ransom. I will come and redeem. But for now, I will let you abide in, under the chains that make you feel something of the bitterness. And then in the last two verses, he basically turns that same thought around. That I blessed you, but I will now curse 
you. I blessed you, but I will now curse you. And that, those are the words I read earlier on. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His springs shall be parched. He shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So from having so much of a blessed life, suddenly it's a wilderness. A wilderness. Because he or she did not listen. And then those earth-moving words, or rather heart-rending words, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Brethren, almost the whole book has been one singular message, and it is this. God loves us. He wants us to be in a loving relationship with him, with no equals, with no competitors, a life of singular devotion to the Lord. That's what he wants. After all, he has shown us himself how he has loved us. He's given us his very best in heaven. Not an angel, but his own son. Just in case you think he's being a little too selfish, he's given his own son to die on the cross so that we can be his. And he is saying in this book that any form of spiritual prostitution is something he doesn't take lightly. He doesn't. And as Ozia chased his wife, as God took Israel and Judah into captivity, so he will chastise us. That's a serious warning. Because he wants our hearts for himself. A loving relationship with him. So the appeal is obvious. That if we have divided devotion, let's deal with it. Let's deal with it. So that our lives from beginning to end are about the Lord singular the Lord that we should love him with all our hearts, minds souls and strength that's the message let's not wait until disaster falls let's make sure we respond to his word that way Amen